Warning, the Thin Blue Line podcast, Harry Bosch, contains adult content. Harry and others use profanity, adult language, and discuss adult topics, and so shall we. One more warning, this podcast may contain spoilers. I must stress this for this chapter and the entire series of Harry Bosch, so please proceed with extreme caution. I think it will be best for you, Eleanor, if you turn yourself in. Go get a lawyer and then come in. Tell them you didn't have anything to do with the murders. Tell them the story about your brother. They're reasonable people and they'll want to keep it as low profile and avoid a scandal. The U.S. attorney will probably let you plead to something short of murder. The bureau will go along with that. And what if I don't turn myself in? Will you tell them? Nah, like you said, I'm too much a part of it. They'll never go with what I'll tell them. He thought a long moment. He didn't want to say what he was going to say next unless he was sure he meant it and could and would do it. No, I won't tell them. But if I don't hear in a few days that you went in, I will tell Ben. And then I'll tell Tran. I won't need to prove it to them. I'll just tell them the story with enough facts that they'll know it's true. Then you know what they'll do? They'll act like they don't know what the hell I'm talking about. And they'll tell me to get out. And then they'll come after you, Eleanor. They'll be looking for the same justice you got for your brother. You'll do that, Harry? I said I would. I'll give you two days to go in. Then I'll tell them the story. She looked at him and a pained expression on her face asked why. Harry said, someone has to answer for Sharky. Hello, and welcome to the Thin Blue Line podcast, Harry Bosch. I am Philip Parker, a retired detective with over 29 years of law enforcement experience. Please subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. And please don't forget to rate us five stars or better. Please follow us on Twitter at the Thin Blue Line Pod or our Facebook and Instagram pages, which is set up for our fans. Also, stay tuned to the end of this podcast. I was able to convince my old partner to be interviewed as a treat to the listeners. I think you will find it interesting and enjoyable. Now all that's out of the way, it's time to get back to work and probe into part nine of the Black Echo. Last time on the Thin Blue Line podcast, Harry Bosch, we explored part eight of the Black Echo, where Bosch is taken to the hospital and is interrogated by both ID and FBI. Deputy Chief Irvin threatens to throw Bosch off the force if he leaks any details about the investigation to the press. Bosch learns that Wish wants to quit the FBI. Bosch leaves the hospital and sneaks into the police station. There, he reviews Sharky's tape interview and then realizes that Wish was the true mastermind behind the heist, though she didn't orchestrate the murders. During this episode, we will be taking a deep dive into part nine, Monday, May 28th, Memorial Day Observe. As always, there's a prerequisite spoiler alert. It's my intention to stay away from spoilers, but sometimes shit happens, so proceed with caution. And now, the Thin Blue Line Podcast, Harry Bosch.
Let's open up the murder book and turn the page to the chronological record so that we can do an investigative summary of the information gathered thus far in this chapter. Upon Bosch's revelation that Wish was part of the criminal act, he responds to her home, but she's not there. Bosch first concludes that Wish is the passenger in the Jeep that dumps Metal's body at the reservoir. Sharky's failure to recognize her should have preserved his life until hypnotizing him is suggested. Bosch then questions how Wish ties into the Vietnam veterans and the victims. Recalling how the memorial upset and changed her, he decides to find her brother's name. Bosch then responds to the memorial and reads all of the 58,132 names. He fails as expected to find the name of Michael Scarletti. The next morning, Meadows' grave is surrounded by media vans. Seeing Bremer leave the grave, Bosch summons him and says he has not read the newspaper's account, but he's sure they're full of bullshit. Bosch informs Bremer of things to check out, to include making IED explain what Lewis and Clark were doing. Further, find out where Rourke is being buried and send someone there to cover it. That should speak for itself. Lastly, request the military records of Meadows, Rourke, Franklin, and Delgado, and also to follow up on the death of Sharkey. Bosch responds to the federal building to meet Wish. While there, Wish explains that the FBI has found the diamonds along with other burglary items. Bosch and Wish walk back to the memorial. While there, Wish explains how her brother died. Wish further tells Bosch that her brother was killed in the same manner as Meadows. Wish describes that she's seeking justice for her brother. Wish explains that it appears that her brother was killed because he was supposed to drop off a diplomatic pouch, but instead concocted a different plan. Seeking justice for her brother, Wish explains that she wanted to inflict financial pain on Bach and Tran. Wish further explains she recruited Rourke, who in turn put together the team of Meadows, Franklin, and Delgado to steal the diamonds from Tran and Bach. She also states that her plan was to steal the diamonds and then arrest Rourke. Wish tells Bosch that he was her insurance plan just in case she needed to bring the whole thing down. Wish further tries to explain her affections to Bosch was genuine, but Bosch stopped her from speaking further about their relationship. After finish telling her story, she asks Bosch if he's going to let her go. They both agree that if Bosch turns her in, he would be implicated just as much as her. Upon gathering the 42, Bosch tells Wish that if she doesn't turn herself in, he would then tell the story to Bach and Tran, and for the rest of her life, she would be looking over her shoulders. Upon hearing this ultimatum, Wish has a pained look on her face. Seeing this, Bosch tells Wish, someone has to answer for Sharky. Epilogue. Bosch checks back into the hospital for further surgery to repair his shoulder. Later, Bosch receives a visit from Lieutenant Harvey Pounds, who tries to encourage him to take the 80% disability. Pounds also advises Bosch upon passing departmental physical, he will be assigned back to the homicide table at Hollywood. Bosch also receives a visit from the United States Attorney's Office concerning Wish. AUSA Chavez wants to confirm that Bosch is Wish's alibi for the night of Sharky's killing. Upon Bosch's release from the hospital, and arrival home, he receives Wish's framed print of Hopper's Nighthawk. Bosch laments that the painting never fails to fascinate him, 
or invoke memories of Eleanor Wish. The darkness, the stark loneliness, the man sitting alone, his face turned towards the shadows. I am that man, Harry Bosch would think each time he looked at it. And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's lift up the yellow tape and examine the clues for the defining theme for this chapter, part nine, Monday, May 28th is justice. Hello, welcome back again. We're hitting the streets and we pick up this chapter with Bosch uh, just getting to the cemetery. But prior to him arriving to the cemetery, arriving at the cemetery, thank you, he uh, tells us that he had drove by Eleanor's place to, uh, to confront her, I guess. He said he didn't know what to do, but he felt as though a little kid uh, checking up on his girlfriend. And he said something that was really stark and really hard and really gets to the heart of this particular book. At least I, I, I took from this particular book. Yeah, he says uh, you know, from the book, he headed back towards the cemetery thinking about Eleanor and how she had betrayed him in love and in business all at the same time. And just think about that as a person, my goodness, you know, uh, to get, to get stabbed in the heart twice, I think was a lot. And again, we see him doing what Bosch has done and, and will become, this is not a spoiler, but will become his trademark. He goes back over the investigation again. He turns it over and over again. And just like I was telling you before, every good investigator, they just don't stop. They sleep about it. They think about it. He's turning over now with more information. Now the final piece to the puzzle, at least he thinks. But now he goes with, it must have been Eleanor in the car that, Bar- that, that Sharky had talked about as the other man. But it wasn't a man. It was actually Eleanor. And the big guy actually drove a drug, excuse me, um, Meadow's body into the reservoir. And, you know, again, you know, our boy Bosch, he takes it to heart because, again, he says to himself, you know what? Um, shit. You know, Sharky's life should not have been taken, but it was him who suggested that he, uh, that they hypnotize Sharky, and Eleanor must have passed that information on to Rourke. And then he just goes to, okay, why? Because Eleanor does not seem to be. I mean, of course, the other guys is money. You know, it's financial. They were criminals. Delgado, Franklin, Metals were all criminals, and so money is obvious motive for uh this particular a uh, crime so but he couldn't figure on why why the hell would eleanor be involved in it because the money just, is something else that's missing okay now this is i wanted to get to this particular point so as he gets to the cemetery and he turns his sirens on and a guy comes in a uniform with a tin badge and he then you know looks at bosch bosch shows him his id and he says are you police and then Bosch says, nah, well, at least he thought he wanted to say, nah, Anway. Prior episodes, I was talking about when do you flex on people when they call you an officer when you're really a detective. And I kind of, like I said, I was throwing shade at uh, Clark for, um, or was it, I think it was Lewis, for pushing back on Avery when Avery asked, can I help you, officer? And, you know, as, as I was telling you, I talked about that in the prior episodes. But here, this attendant pushes up back on, pushes up on Bosch and says, you know, he takes his flashlight, the attendant takes his flashlight, flashes it and reads Bosch's ID. 
And he says, can I help you, officer? He, okay, so hopefully you can see the difference between the two. Here's a guy who is in some type of guard or some type of law enforcement because he's, he's the guardian of the particular cemetery. He has the gate. He has a uniform on, has a 10 badge on. He reads Bosch's ID. And then he, look, he comes at him and says, can I help you, officer? And Bosch flexes back over top of him and says, no, detective. Now, that was something small. And again, I pointed that out before. But at this instance, Bosch is absolutely right for pushing back up on this guy because evidently he's just trying to push Bosch's button. It's like, dude, you got me out here flashing your sirens. What the fuck are you doing? And Bosch tells him, look, an investigation. <laughs> then the guy tries to say, well, you know, I don't know if I can let you in. And, and I remember I was telling you in prior episodes, you know, you try your best to get people to help you out because you never know when you're going to need them. But again, here we go. This guy uh, is pushed up on Bosch and Bosch kind of goes right for the juggler. He said, look, you're going to give me a hard time. I'll give you a hard time. I'll call you a supervisor and tell him you were drinking on duty and see how that would go. Only thing I want to do is go look at the wall. And the guy backs down immediately. And Bosch kind of feels bad about it. But, you know, again, I was always taught, let, let, let them make the first move. And then you can be a great counterpuncher in, in these type of situations. And so Bosch was very respectful, show the guy's badge, show him his ID. You know, here he has a light a siren showing, you know, he's a siren. He is a cop. And this guy's want to give him some hard time. And then Bosch does what he, as he thought he was going to do. He was up there all night long searching for the name of Michael Scarletti, which is Eleanor's brother. And I, to be quite honest with you, that's a testament to how much, how far he wanted to believe there was this other, this, this other motive that must be, is flowing through this whole thing that he's just not getting. Because why, he, as we, as we uh, subsequently find out, he spends almost eight hours up there reading every name of the wall. And we do then get a glimpse. Mark, Michael does a great job of giving us a glimpse of how it must feel for a veteran to go visit that wall. And Bosch and um, Michael then shows us how Bosch puts his hand on the wall, feels the different people's names. He comes across people he thought he knew had died. And again, I have not had a, a close person fall in the line of duty. But I have gone to tons of police memorials and just listening to the stories and seeing everyone else's response to their falling loved ones. I, I just I it touched me even just think about it right now. And so then afterwards, Bosch takes a uh, quick nap and he wakes up and he says that he didn't recognize all the little flags that were marked that marked the graves of the uh, uh, veteran cemetery. And he sees the media vans is out there. And he then sees his boy Brimmer and he, you know, whistles over the Brimmer. Now, I love how, you know, I like how Michael does not just put characters in just for character's sake, because Michael put Brimmer in at the very beginning of this uh, book. Remember, Brimmer was the guy uh, at the L.A. Times who gave him, as they call it, the clips. And again, we don't have, we didn't have the Internet back then. You couldn't just Google things when uh, you wanted some information. And you had to have get your source of information anywhere. And as he explained later on in this particular chapter, this is give and take, this push and pull where you give the, the uh, reporter some information and then the reporter helps you out. And Bosch is true to his word. You know, he told Brimmer, hey, give me these clips, but if there's something about uh, this case, you'll get, the, you'll get the big lead on it. So again, I like how Michael doesn't just throw someone in. He actually uses them again. And again, you, you know, at the beginning of the story, you thought, oh, you know, Brimmer 
okay, he's just a, just some reporter, but now he brings Brimmer back in. So I thought that was pretty cool how Michael just weaves people in to Harry's world and is not afraid to keep using them over and over again. But true to form, Harry comes straight to the line and doesn't give Brimmer everything, but gives him enough, gives him enough to go and put the whole pieces of the story together. And he actually tells him, hey, you know, if, uh, if you have a problem getting the rest of his information, after, uh, come back to me and I can fill in what you don't have. And one of the things I really like about this, um, this book is Michael throws levity in where you never think it will, will be levity. Like, what is, you know, let's think about it. He just finished telling Brimmer about this story that everyone thinks that these guys went down in the line of heroes. Very depressing. But then Bosch turns around to him and says, you know, again from the book, I'll probably need a job after the story comes out. And then Brimmer tried to reassure him, no, 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 I got enough people. I can call the public relations at LAPD or I can do this and I can do that. And then the last thing I'll say is, I'll say Detective Bosch declined comment. And then he goes, how's that? And Bosch then says, I probably need a job after your story comes out. <laughs> I know I'm not giving it justice. And I, I just hope if you get, get a chance to read that passage, I'm stumbling here, so I apologize. But I thought that was classic Michael Connolly. And now we have Harry going to the federal building again because you again Michael set this up when from from the, one of the first uh, chapters when he met um, Eleanor because if you remember he was at the window looking over the cemetery now he brings it back full circle again and I love that I mean these are the things that I love about this particular again I read this book tons of times and I always find these little nuggets and this is one of the nuggets I definitely love again Michael makes you think he's not a writer that just puts stuff put stuff in there just to be putting stuff in there, especially this type of this first book is really classic uh, Michael Connolly. And he makes you think. So then you get um, conditioned to, Hey, he's put this in here for some reason, but then you forget about it. And that's what I love about it because you, you, you're reading and you already, okay. You precondition yourself to say, um, okay, this got, this got to be important. I know it's going to come up somehow, but then you start reading because then he has you going and get you all worked up about something. And then all of a sudden he slams you back again. And then he's like, oh, shit, that was what? OK, I did remember that. So I, I like getting that rush, that feeling every time I read his particular books, because this stuff right here is exciting. So, again, he's already set the cemetery up. Bosch overlooked the cemetery when we first started five days ago. And now he brings it back full circle. So Bosch, you know, goes up to see Eleanor and, you know, he even says it himself, you know, Michael says that Harry felt uh, ashamed because he noticed twice he noticed that Eleanor didn't have a gun. She had a gun with her and he felt very naked because he didn't like, wow. You know, remember the lady did save his life. But at the same token, you know, with this new revelation of his that her brother's name is not on the wall and she's been lying to him. Uh, now, all, all, it's like all trust. But is it he's on that? He's on that line. He's on he's on the line. with Does he? How can he trust her or what does he really trust her in? Because he's not doing to me what a typical Harry would do. So, you know, he asked her, let's take a walk. Uh, they walk back towards the memorial. And that's when he pushes up on her and say, you know, tell me about your brother and tell me how he died. And I think you know, that's when the walls start coming down. And if you remember, I told you before, most criminals want to tell cops what, what's, what they did. For some, whatever their reason or rationale, they want to get it out of their chest just to make themselves feel better. I mean, sometimes I guess you can look at it as maybe a therapist, but most criminals do want to get out that, get the story out. And she goes into the story 
about when she did visit the wall and when she got to the wall, she couldn't find her brother's name up there anywhere. And she yelled at everyone and said, how can you forget someone's name? Because, you know, she as she explains it here and I can understand it. Her brother was her world, was her core. Everything about Eleanor Wish revolved around her brother up until this moment. And then she finally went and told to her parents, talked to her parents, and her parents told her the truth that he was found dead um, in a hotel room uh, suffering from an overdose of heroin. So that fueled her to become a cop. And then it fueled her to come to L.A. And that fueled her to then dig, 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 to put the whole pieces together. And then she put in motion this plan to seek her, as she said, not justice, I mean, not revenge, but justice. Eleanor goes into great detail. And one of the particular portions of this uh, chapter I wanted to point out is, you know, she's telling Bosch everything, all the, the limbs that she went through. And she, you know, she finally tracked down um, and found Rourke. And one of the things, again, from the book says, Rourke was the key, she said. I went to work on him. I guess you can say I seduced him with the plan. And then Bosch felt something tear loose inside, some final feeling for her. And that sets up what Bosch does next when it comes to holding her accountable. One of the motives that Eleanor says that she wanted to, you know, hurt them financially, hurt them as in Tran and Ben financially for what they did and take their precious diamonds and they'd be left with nothing. And then she said, you know, every, it, it would have been a nice clean circle. But then Bosch says, but Meadows took the bracelet. And she said, yeah, you know what? Yeah, Meadows took the bracelet. And I, I knew about the bracelet because I've been watching the pawn sheets uh, every, you know, since the uh, bank robbery. And I told, I panicked and I told Rourke and he panicked. And him and Delgado and Franklin went and tried to muscle out or extract the information where the, the pawn ticket was. And then after she talked about Meadows, Bosch then asked her, what about Sharky? And then she said, Sharky, you know, very wistfully, Sharky. Like, this thing start, got out of control quickly. So Wish tells Bosch that she told Rourke about Sharky that, again, Sharky didn't even recognize her. That, she thought, that Sharky thought that she was a man. And that she messed up and told Rourke about thinking about hypnotizing him. And she said, look, I convinced him and he won't do it. But Rourke didn't trust you not to do it without her. So he went on and did what he did with Sharky. So by this time, they had finished walking and they got, up at, uh, got back to Bosch's car. And then Bosch drove her back to the federal building. And while they out front, you know, he asked her, well, you know, why couldn't you just let it go? Why did you not let this go? And, she, you know, she said, I don't know how many times I asked that same question to her, you know, to myself. And in front of the federal building, she pretty much asked him, are you going to turn me in? Are you going to turn me in now, Harry? And then she kind of says, you know, it might be a hard time proving your case. You know, everyone's dead. And, and they might even think that you're a part of it, too. You know, you know, he thinks, you know, thinks about it for a little bit. And then she says to him also, too, you know, and if it means anything at all, what happened between you and me, I wasn't part of the plan. He stops her and says, don't. Don't even talk about it. Don't even say anything about that. And, you know, this is the hard Harry's coming out. And then they say after a few moments of uh, uh, uncomfortable silence, she said, you're just letting me go here? And Bosch says to her, you know, I think it's best for you, Eleanor, to turn yourself in. Uh, get a lawyer. Tell them you didn't have anything to do with the murders. Tell them the story about your brother. Uh, you know, again, these people are reasonable. 
and they don't they want the case to be low file, low profile, no scandals. You know, the FBI will go along with whatever the U.S. attorney uh, says, you know, you know, get a plea deal. And again, now we see Harry, the hard Harry coming now that here's the hammer Harry, you know, uh, all feelings for her right now are 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 ripped away. And she says, and what if I don't turn myself in? You're going to tell them. And then he says, no, no, like you said, I'm too much part of it. But he thought, he thought long and hard. And before he thought about it, he wanted to make sure that once he, once he said what he's about to say, that he actually would go through with it. He said, but you know what? I won't, I won't tell them. I'll tell uh, Ben and Tron. And I'll give them just enough of the story to know that I'm not bullshitting and that it's true. And then, and I love this line. And then they will seek the justice that you got for your brother. And I guess, you know, you know, she's shocked. Eleanor's shocked and Bosch reads, reads finally now he's able to read her face and his hurtful face. And the best line of, you know, of this particular book, that someone has to answer for Sharky. And that goes back to his motto. And again, his motto is everybody counts or nobody counts. And that I love that particular portion. And that gets back to, you know, you remember when we were, my brother and I was first talking about it. And again, we knew Sharky was a piece of shit. He, and as Bosch said, he's going to probably be in that interview room, if not uh, as, as someone victim, but as a predator. So, but at this particular moment, at this particular date and time, Sharky didn't deserve what he got. He was just a, a kid who's up at the reservoir, you know, uh, getting high and tagging. He, he didn't have anything to do with this, and he is innocent. So everyone counts, so no one counts. And then we get to the epilogue, and uh, Harry's checked himself back in the hospital, and the doctor doesn't make it easy for him. You know, he rips off the, the homemade bandages and, and puts on some stinging saline, and he goes in for surgery. And then uh, our boy, you know, uh, Lieutenant uh, Harvey Pounds, comes on in and uh, pretty much try to convince Harry to to quit and take the eighty percent again. You know, most most people with this time on, you got to think about it. That's a hard thing. That's a hard pill to swallow. Not to take the eighty percent. I mean, that's that's a that's a lot of good money. But all these people again don't recognize the mission that Harry's on, and that is not what he wanted. It, it, no, um, most cops don't go into law enforcement for the money to get rich. They're going for this mission, you know, they want to help people, they help the, they help the defenseless. And again, everyone keeps reading, misreading Harry when it comes to his mission, his core. And our boy, uh, Lieutenant Pounds tells, you know, continue as, uh, to, to me, I think as an asshole he is, you know, well, of course, all this contention, did you pass a uh, physical, a departmental physical? And Bosch then, then gets a um, visit from the U.S. Attorney's Office to confirm Eleanor's story, it seems like though Eleanor did go in and she's just, uh, the U.S. Attorney's following up that Bosch and Eleanor were together the night that Sharky was, uh, was killed. And she kind of infers that Eleanor would be okay, that she's going to go up into, you know, she'll do some time, but she do they do soft time up in a, uh, in a federal penitentiary. And then as Harry's released from the hospital, you know, we, we conclude the book that he receives a package from Eleanor and his Hopper's Nighthawk. And that 
sets the theme of Harry throughout all his books. And he even says it, you know, from the book, the painting never fails to fascinate him or invoke memories of Eleanor Wish, the darkness, the stark loneliness, the man sitting alone, his face turned towards the shadows. I am that man Harry Bosch would think each time he saw the painting. So my everyone counts or no one counts person of note in this chapter, part nine, Monday, May 28th, is our boy Harry Bosch. Harry is the star of the book, the main character, but it's not just because of that. It's because how he finally put all the pieces together. And he actually, to me, he actually did Eleanor at the end. He, he, he did give her a solid, you know, turn yourself in, Eleanor. I, I would, I kind of think he would tell been and Tron about Eleanor because everyone has to count or no one's going to count. And even a little piece like a piece of shit of Sharky has got to count. Now, I love the debate that we had on you know, I've got these emails from people about, you know, they thought that Harry should have let let Eleanor go. And if you let Harry, if, if Harry had let Eleanor go without someone being accountable for Sharky then he wouldn't be Harry. And I don't really think we would like these books because you know at the end of the day, Harry's going to do right. No matter how hard it is, no matter what it is, he's going to do right. And as I told you in last chapter, I think it was, you know, morals and principles are expensive. And he's not willing to compromise his morals and principles because that's too much of a price for him to do. So, again, my... Everyone counts or no one counts is uh, my boy, Harry Bosch. friends we're going to deviate from the normal format which let's be honest with you there is no format at this point in time of this podcast i've been trying to mold this thing and so we're going to tweak it again but at this point i want to bring to you an interview that i did with my former partner her name is jackie garish and i wanted my listeners to understand how important and how difficult and the great strides that women overcame in the early portion of the 90s, at least where I came a police officer. And I think Jackie is a good representation of that particular time of law enforcement in my in my world. And I think you will enjoy the, the uh, interview. So uh, 
Jackie doesn't know, but she's going to be a regular on the podcast. So, but don't tell her, okay? So, sit back and enjoy the interview with my partner, Detective Jacqueline Garish. I'm sitting with my partner, my old partner, Jackie Garish. And I've always talked about how I admire strong females and how Eleanor represented that for me. So I couldn't think of a better strong female police officer who I wanted to represent Eleanor, not Eleanor in a sense, but just give listeners an overall thought of how Eleanor worked in 1990. So Jackie, how are you doing? How are you? Fine. And since this is my first time doing this, uh, please be patient with me. What made you want to become a police officer? So um, I did have an uncle who worked in Park Police, um, even though I had still had kind of limited contact. But I, I just think between books and movies and things at a very young age, it just seemed appealing to me, right. either, either the law enforcement path or the spy path. And the law enforcement seemed a little more realistic. The spy path, okay. <laughs> just because the spy path, you know, you get on their bad side and they just kill you. <laughs> right. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I knew at a very, very young age, and I don't think at any time I ever questioned going into law enforcement. Okay. So, when did you graduate from the academy? I graduated in May of 1990. May of 1990. And when, what would you say the representation were with females in your academy class? Uh, well, at the time, I think they were trying to bring more females in. Um, so I would say maybe, maybe 20 to 30 percent okay. female. Now, was um, that a lot? I mean, because you said you were trying to, did you get a sense that there was an effort to bring more females on or? Um, I think there was initially just because there weren't that many on at the time. Um, so I think that maybe they were trying to kind of boost up the females um, because a lot of research had come out, I think, around that time about how females, um, would help in certain situations. And so, yeah, it was, but it was different. It was different in the academy. I mean, you could tell um, there were instructors that were not fond of having females there. Really? Well, give me an example of what makes you feel that way. Well, give me, give me, the instructor made you feel as though they weren't fond of having females. What exactly? Give me one example of that. Oh, their demeanor. They made it very clear. They made it very clear that, you know what? You, you don't belong here. And especially with me being a short female, to right. top it off, there were just a lot of people who were who didn't feel like when I got on the street, I would be able to handle myself. And one of the PT <laughs> instructors who later became our captain, yes, yes, um, he flat out told me right before we were getting ready to graduate, he said, yeah, I give you two months. Ooh, wow. Two months and you'll be gone. And again, to give my listeners, you said you were, he didn't think you were tall enough. Well, <laughs> let everyone know Jackie is uh, five foot, we call it five foot nothing. I call it five foot nothing. If, if you reach five feet, I think that's stretching it. But let's go with five feet. Yes, five foot. Let's I'm go with, sticking to that. I'm sticking with that. <laughs> so, But he was the epitome of, you know, he was strong, he was in shape, but he was not that bright. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, let's be realistic. That's great to be strong, but, you know, then you can't figure out what to do. Right. So I, I felt like, 
you know what, maybe I'm not the biggest and I'm not the strongest, but you know what, nobody is. Because at some point you're going to find somebody who's bigger and stronger. Always. And oh, faster, definitely. Definitely. But you know what, I felt that my advantage was my intellect. Definitely. Oh, well. So, what was the first Michael Connolly book you read? And why? Um, well, somebody by the name of Phil right. kept bugging me about reading this series and he's like oh you got to try this series and i have always been a huge fan of murder mystery and um and ironically i had never heard of this one and i'm you know you had told me so much about it so i thought oh you know what let me pick up one and i happened to be at the library with my daughter so i picked up city of bones right and it was really good and you saw me reading it and you're like no 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 what are you doing you're reading these out of order you can't do that you got to right. start from the beginning well, I finished the book anyways, um, which I did like it a lot. So I said, you know what? He's right. Let me go back to the beginning. And so I pulled up the list, right. printed out the list. And, you know, before I had a phone at that time. Right. And I was like, okay, I'm going to start from the very beginning. And I went through and I went through them pretty quickly, I have to say. Right. Um, and every time a new one comes out, I snatch it up. Now, why did you like Harry Bosch? What, what made Harry... A character and made you because I know I like him, but why did you like Harry Bosch? Well, because I think it gave a realistic view to people about law enforcement. So people who weren't in law enforcement got a little bit of a better understanding of the way it really worked, mm-hmm. not this hyped up, you know, um, televised version that right. people see on, you know, on these shows. Right. And then people who were in law enforcement, it definitely rang true so many of the things that he brought up right and and issues that normal people don't think about like dealing with your officials and dealing with with you know the way the system works and and the frustrations Mm -hmm. of law enforcement Mm -hmm. and so i like that because i really felt like it was realistic great well that's that's the reason why we is not this this book but also, The Wire. Remember we were talking about when The Wire first came out? And oh, yeah. We said, oh, my goodness, they must have a cop on the inside. And yeah. Giving away our secrets. Giving away our secrets, exactly. In relationships, what's, what's the difficulty having relationships with cops and non-cops and why? Oh, gosh. Okay. So, so of course, being a single cop in the early 90s, um, it was tough. Right. Because dating civilians or non-cops right um there were a lot of them that were just felt threatened mm-hmm. they weren't secure enough right um because i gotta be honest most female cops at least i think the good ones tend to be a little alpha female definitely um and just a lot of i don't know civilian males they they just weren't comfortable with that Definitely. You know, so that was an issue. Or the flip side of it was they liked it too much. <laughs> well, give me an example. They, give me an example of liking well, it too much. Well, because, like, all they want to do is talk about your job. Right. It's like, seriously, there's more to me than just my job and what I do. Right. And it's great that you want to be supportive. But when it becomes a thing like, that is such a huge turn on, you know, can I see your cuffs? Uh, no, dude. <laughs> no. You know what? Nice meeting you. Time to go. So, Yeah. Mm. And then, and then, of course, if you decide to go, because then you think, you know what, let me date somebody in law enforcement because they're going to understand the shift work, Mm -hmm. you know, having to work late at the last minute, you know, having to cancel a date, stuff like that. They understand it because they live it. 
So you figure that's the safest route to go. But, you know, then you've got somebody who could potentially be around all the time. And because it's a male dominated um, profession, you're around guys all the time. Right. So then they get jealous sometimes because you're always around guys. And pretty much all of your friends are guys. Right. And so, you know, it's. Well, let's just talk specifically about you and I. I mean, I mean, I would call you at two o'clock in the morning. Yeah. And, you know, and if you don't have the right temperament and disposition, you can be threatened by that. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, we, we would call each other, especially before you had your child. I mean, it was, again, three o'clock in the morning. I know I would be if I'm waking awake or something and Cheryl's there. I'm like, well, I'm gonna call Jack and ask. It's like, it's three o'clock in the morning. Phil. I'm like, oh, she's up and, you know, ring the phone. and Boom. You pick up the phone. Yeah. So if you're dating someone like that, um, they have to be secure within themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, even when I did get married, you know, my husband, um, he was he was pretty understanding about that because he was like, oh, either either it's Phil or it's a source. (laughs) Right. And the good thing was all my sources were gay. So at least he didn't feel too threatened. Right. (laughs) Well, even okay, it's funny because I did bring it up in the podcast where I told to I told uh, the listeners that. Sources called you all the time and you had to pick, you had to answer the phone. You yeah. never knew exactly what they were doing or yeah. why were they calling you? Yeah. And, you know, like you said, not everybody is going to be that trusting. Right. And let's face it, probably for good reason, because, you know, cops are known for not being the most monogamous <laughs> people. Let's put it that way. You know, um, so it, it, it is. It's hard because. Because you have to be the same way, too. Definitely. You have to have that same trust of your partner when they're getting calls from women. Right. And I mean, because the women could be attorneys. They could be sources. sources, They could be other people in the police department. So you really have to have that trust. Well, you know, this uh, just came off the top of my head. Could you explain the difference of being in patrol and taking after you shift, you just drop everything opposed to being in investigations? Where it's never, it's ne- you never turn it off. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, when you're on patrol, you answer the calls. Now, you may have to stay late to finish up a report or maybe, you know, give something to a detective or whatever. But pretty much the end of your shift, you're done. Right. Now, I mean, a good officer may decide, you know what, I, I think this is a problem on my beat. I'm going to start paying special attention to that. But realistically, once they're done with their shift, they're gone. Right. Um. But being an investigator or a detective, you do. You, you can't turn that off. You've got that case, and especially when you first get into it. It almost yeah. becomes obsessive. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. It's like you, you're lying in bed at night, wide awake, thinking, okay, how can I try to get this person? What right. can I do? What are, what are, what, how can I think outside the box? Because I've really got to figure this out. And it, it can be obsessive. And right. you're like, I, I don't know what to do. I've got to try something. And so you're always thinking about things. You're taking calls after hours. You know, you might have, you might think of something and be like, you know what, let me put that in my phone as a note so tomorrow I can run some extra stuff and blah, blah, blah. Right. So it's just, it, it doesn't stop. And, and you do field calls. Yes. I mean, if something comes up, especially if you work in a small, very specialized unit, you were the only ones yes. on a department of, you know, anywhere from three to 5,000 people. Right. So you are going to have to field calls. Definitely. And um, so, yeah, it's, it, it can definitely take a good portion of your personal life as well. Definitely. Which I think, you know, your partner has to understand too. Oh, yeah. Um, so one of the questions, another question I want to ask you, 
Have you had experience where people not addressing you and you felt as though they were not addressing you because of your sex? Yes. And I, I found that to be more so in, um, especially some cultures, mm-hmm. um, like some Middle Eastern cultures, some Hispanic cultures, where they don't view women as being equals. Right. Um, much less being superiors. Yes. So they, um, they have a hard time with that. And they just are very resistant to following your orders and to talking directly to you, maintaining eye contact with you. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I've, I've had that happen with where they want to deal with um, my male partner. Right. Um, of course, I worked in the alternative lifestyle community for a long time. Right. So um, working in that community, most of them wanted to deal with Phil anyways because they thought he was hot. <laughs> You're so wrong. <laughs> Well, go ahead, go ahead, because I know I know what six I know what, what you're talking about. So, for oh, my listeners, was, go ahead, was, t- go tell tell them the circumstances. It what was happened? Quite an adjustment, t- for t- Phil, t- because t- Phil is not a touchy feely kind of person, and you know when you have somebody that you're interviewing and they're holding your touching your arm and squeezing your muscle. Oh, Phil was about to jump out of his skin, um, but he got better. He got better over the years, um, but it was. It was an adjustment for him, and he ha- he really had to um, do something that was not in his comfort zone. Go ahead, go ahead and tell it. I don't. It's, go ahead no, say no, it. he he just he just had to kind of overcome that. That you know that that's a subculture, and that's just something that that they're very comfortable with, and you kind of have to get comfortable with it. Right. And, and um, it was a tough pill to swallow at first, but he got through it. <laughs> well, I did. Thanks with your help. Um, why did you want, why did you want to become a detective? I mean, again, uh, for listeners, most of the time there's two different routes. You either go to patrol and you go up the career ladder, or you go in investigations and you pretty much stay as a uh, different levels of invest- investigator. So, why did you want to become a detective? Well, this is one area that Harry Bosch and I completely agree on. So, if you stay in patrol and you decide I'm going to go up the ladder. I'm going to keep getting promoted. The higher up you get, the less police work you do. Right. Okay. And you are really just a manager. Yes. And I didn't go into law enforcement to be a manager. I didn't go in there to sit in an office and not get to go out and play with the other kids. Right, right, right. So, um, and I looked at that like, you know, yeah, you you have more power, Mm -hmm. which I find that a lot of people who do that kind of have power issues, control issues. You know, they like it. Um, and yeah, you get a little, little bit more money, but that's, that's not the fun part to me. Yes. That's not, you know, I don't get any fulfillment out of that. Right. And let's face it, nobody really went into law enforcement for the money. Definitely. It's, it's definitely not the money. Definitely. So I felt that going into an investigative unit and especially picking a type of specialization that nobody else has, mm-hmm. you know, being unique, um, that was where the fun was because right. you were going into unknown territory. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I like that, you know, I thought that that was where I could best be served. Right. Um, so I, I just thought that going into investigations would be so much more fun. Right. You're always doing police work. Um, and so you, you still have, and, and you can still get promoted somewhat. Yes. Um, the money does get better too. Right. So you do get a little bit of both worlds, but I just think that's the most fulfilling when it comes to what I wanted. Because I wanted to stay in police work. Well, and again, for the listeners, um, 
LAPD has is a little bit different than our PD when it comes to the level of investigators. Harry was a D3, and that's like, you know, you take the big cases and the big, uh, uh, big investigations. In our world, we, um, both Jack and I had, had risen to that level, you know, where we, we handle most of the uh, tougher cases, more involved cases, long-term investigations. Um, what was your first big investigation? Were you excited? Yes. Um, one of the first ones I can remember was a woman who was, um, she was basically a prostitute. She was operating out of her apartment mm-hmm. and she was advertising in a local paper for giving massages. Right. Um, but she was also a part-time opera singer. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And so that was, that one um, I was working in prostitution. I just started prostitution. Mm-hmm. So they were like, okay, this is your first case. We want you to work by yourself. Okay. And so, like I said, I was up at night. I couldn't sleep. I was just constantly thinking about, you know, how can I get someone in there? How can I send a UC in? You know, what can we do? Because those can be tricky cases when Definitely. you're asking cops to be undercovers to take off their clothes. All right. Oh, we, uh, even though sometimes we have a lot of volunteers. Right, right. A lot of volunteers. Right. That can be tricky. Um, so, you know, you're trying to think of the, the legal restrictions and ramifications. So, but yeah, it, it just, it kept me up so much. I was just so obsessed about it. And so that was one of the big ones I, I remember. And um, I mean, I, I worked it. Everything worked out fine. I learned a lot of lessons, what mm-hmm. to do, what not to do. Um, but it's, it's definitely a switch from when you're going from that uniform, mm-hmm. um, position to an investigative one. Well, you know, and one of the things that I've always lamented about was how you and I were trained as investigators when we first came on the mentorship. I mean, I had great mentors when I came on and I'm not came on, but especially when we made the transition from patrol to, um, investigator, uh, did you have, have some good mentors? And if you did, how did they mentor you? to make you feel as though you can do this job. You know, they didn't let you just jump out the window by yourself, but they kind of held you enough, but didn't let you do your own thing too. Did you, did you have such a mentor? And if so, could you talk about that mentor? Yeah, I, and I actually had several. I, I had, um, I mean, the unit I was in was very supportive. Um, I called them dinosaurs because they were all <laughs> like about to retire. Right. They all had like, you know, 25 years plus on right. and here I'm there with two years on the department. Right. Again, so. let me stop. You there. That's very rare. Cause you and I were the same. You didn't normally get to the level of investigations where we were with two to three years on. No. This was very rare. Cause both of us kind of did that. So go ahead. Let me cut you. I'll cut you off. Go ahead. So, um, so they kind of looked at me like, you know, their little sister, little daughter, mm-hmm. whatever, and took me under their wing um, a lot of it was, you know, stay close to me, right? Um, which, you know, you have to be careful because you don't want them to feel like they have to protect you. You know, um, you, you want them to feel like, look, I can protect myself. Right. I just need you to teach me the ropes. Yes. Um, so it's a fine line that you walk, but, um, but they were, they were protective. I have to say Definitely. they were protective regardless. Um, but they were like, you know, stay close to me, watch what I do. And they would explain, this is why I'm doing this mm-hmm. because of this and because of this. And so, you know, first it was stay next to me, watch everything I do. Right. Then it was, okay, I'm going to give you a little bit to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it was, okay, here's your case. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me what you want to do. Tell me what you think, you, how you need to proceed. Right. And so they were very, very supportive. 
And, um, and you know, there were times when I would get called to like, oh, we need you to go run and do this drug warrant. Right. I knew nothing about drugs. Right. You know, I came from an affluent area working patrol. Right. So I didn't have experience with drugs. I didn't have experience, you know, working in lower socioeconomical areas. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, and there were times they were like, look, just calm down, get your vest on, do what we do. Right. Just follow us in, you know. And so I have to say that it was a different era back then. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you listened. You know, you didn't, um, if you had questions, it was fine, but you didn't question them. Right. Like, well, you shouldn't do that. You know, I would never think of doing something like that. Well, well say, not to cut you off, but expound on the difference, how we grew up in the department, opposed to now these young people, they question, like you said, the opposite. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The millennials, they're, it is a completely different world. You know, when we came on, when you went into patrol, they were like, shut up. Sit in, the, sit in your seat, don't touch anything, don't say anything, right. you know, and they weren't always nice about it. Right. Um, which I have to say, they were probably nicer to me than they were to, to the males. Oh, I got, I got crushed. I got, I got the same thing, but mine was motherfucker at both yeah, ends exactly. Of <laughs> so they were a little more polite, maybe because I was a female, but, but the general gist was, you know, shut up and just watch. Right. And God forbid you challenged them or did something when they told you not to, because they would lay into your ass. Yeah. Okay. And nowadays, you know, um, if you try to take somebody and say, look, let me pull you aside. Let me explain to you that you didn't do the right thing, or you should have done this, this, and this. They take offense to it. They do. Right. They, they take offense. Like, how dare you challenge me? Um, you know, who do you think you are? Right. Or, well, I don't need to do it. You can do it because you're the detective. Whoa, 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 whoa. Right. You know, and and I kind of take the attitude, if you want some guidance, I will provide it. Mm -hmm. But if you come to me like, you know, how dare you approach me? Right. I am going to say, look, this is your career. Right. Okay. You're the one that still has to do 25 some odd years. Right. Right. Okay. So I'm just trying to help you out. If you don't want my help, that's fine. But guess what? When you send something to me, I'm going to kick it right back. Definitely. Okay. Well, and better yet, I'm going to CC your official and let them know that they didn't do this, this, and this. So when it's done, you let me know. Well, you know, it's interesting too, and in how another reason I like Harry and the way Michael Connolly writes his story is because when we came on, we were empowered to make decisions. And one of the things that these new generations, they look for someone to tell them what to do. And I don't know how, I mean, it's going to have to happen, but do you, do you find the same thing, the oh, difference yeah. between the two? They, they are completely micromanaged. Nobody wants to make a decision. And that's not just the, the street level. Mm-hmm. That goes all the way up. You know, the sergeants don't want to make a decision. The lieutenants don't want to make a decision. The captains don't want to make a decision because they're afraid that if somebody questions their decision, they're going to be held responsible. Nobody has the backbone to say, nope, this is what should be done. Right. I'm standing by it. Boom. Do it. Right. I'm making the call. Right. And that is so annoying. Well, and th- we found officials who always, well, they don't like our investigative style, that we make decisions without asking. And they've, <clears throat> they have a problem with that. Do you, have you, you, do, have, you had the same experience, correct? Yeah. Uh, yeah. But it doesn't take long for us to break them down. <laughs> I mean, because we have, we've had people who are not experienced, 
um, who may have had very limited experience. And as Harry would say, they've been paper pushers their whole career. Definitely. And then they want to come in and tell you, well, this is how you're going to run this investigation. No, it's not. Right. No. You know, I, I appreciate your input. Thank you. Right. Now go sit back in your office and shuffle some more papers. Right. Because I know how to do this. Right. I have 20 some years experience. Let me do my job and I will make you look good. Right. But let me do my job. So how much time would you say you have for you? You, have, you retired and went back to yes. work and you, you're back at work. How much time would you say you had as an investigator total? Oh. I guess 27 years if you because you have 29 um, on also. Well, I. Yeah, I came over to investigations in 92 mm-hmm. and I left in um, mid 2018. Right. OK. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I spent very little time in patrol, um, and I, I did do a little bit in a few other units, but right. yeah, a majority of mine was investigative. Um, and I, I think that's where you're going to get the most experience and, and we're lucky because we're on a department kind of like LA where there's a lot of lateral movement and mm-hmm. you can get experience in different specialized units without having to be promoted and or know somebody. Yeah. You know, that's one of the great things about our department. I mean, of course, there's always some elements of the good old boys, but I never felt as though it hindered my career because, you know, the openings were there. Yeah, I didn't either. I mean, I definitely felt like if you had something to bring to the table, there was a good chance you were going to get promoted. Right. Um, I mean, of course, just like anywhere, there were, there were the girls who were had other talents. <laughs> Okay, and got promoted based on those talents that had nothing to do with police work. But, um, you know, I think that just like anything, the police department did have a little bit more sexism. Yes. Back then, Um, you did have to be twice as good as a man. Well, that brings me to the next question I ask you. Do you have a, a time where you were like the solo female in the room or given a presentation or something and you felt like a piece of meat? Uh, yeah, there were times. I mean, I, I can remember working for somebody when I did like six months in Intel and I had to make sure there was a desk between us at all times. <laughs> I, I mean, it was like ring around the rosies trying to stay away from him. Right. And, and he was an official. And so, you know, it was like, and back then it wasn't like you could say, look, you know, I kind of feel uncomfortable around him. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you would just be like, look. I need you to come with me. Don't make right. me go in there alone. Please right. Right. come right. with me. I need, I need somebody. Because you knew if you had somebody with you, you'd be safe. Right. But, um, but there were times, you know, I, I can remember being on a scene one time and, and I want to say he was a captain maybe. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he was asking, you know, how do you like it? Blah, blah, blah. And I was like, well, I don't know. I said, maybe, maybe you could uh, help me get a transfer. And he was like, well, what have you done for me lately? Ooh. ooh uh-huh. Wow. And I was like, oh, right. oh, my God. Right. Did he just, like, say what I think he, I mean, did he mean what I think he meant? Right. And I was like, oh, my Lord. And I remember telling my partner at the time, and he was like, oh, man, that captain will not stop watching you. And I was like, oh, right. creepy. But, no, but. No, it's funny. You know, not funny, but it's interesting. I guess in 2019, that would be handled so differently than it was back in the 90s. What, because did you feel compelled like you didn't say anything? Because I know me, I, certain things that came up, I'm like, I ain't saying anything. You just took it. That was, part, that was part of 
the toughening of the skin a little bit. So, but I guess now, and that's so much the Me Too moment and all that kind of stuff, because of course no one should have been treated the way you were back then. But did you feel as though you, you had the, um, the space to say something about that captain? Uh, I mean, I think if it had been something serious, you know, and with me, I, I think that there's a line. Yes. Okay. And, and I'm willing to tolerate so much up to that line. Okay. Um, and I guess at the time, I hadn't really decided what that line would be. Right. I mean, obviously, if he'd like thrown me up against the wall or right. something, you know, that would have been the line. But, but I think that, like you said, you're a cop. Mm-hmm. Okay. You're expected to be able to take anything. Right. And I mean, you have to have thick skin. You can't be offended. You can't be insulted. Which I have to say, it's turned out best for me because it really does take a lot to offend me now. Yes, it does. Okay, so, but I mean, that comes with, you know, all of the things you've been exposed to. And I think that you're kind of expected to kind of encounter a little bit of that. Yes. Because it's almost like being in the military. Okay, you're going to hear the guys shooting the shit. You're going to hear the same things. You're going to see calendars on the wall with half naked women and stuff. And you're just like, whatever. It's just, it's. It's just, and that, and to me, that's almost like part of the camaraderie because the fact that they're not singling you out and treating you like one of the guys, I think helps you bond. Well, it's, well, again, let my listeners understand you gave just as much as you got. I mean, if we ever got into a room and I felt so bad for a couple of guys who kind of like targeted you because I sat back like, oh shit. It's about, about to get, it's about to be on because they just, they picked on the wrong person. Yeah. You got to be able to give it as well as you can take it. Okay. And, and, and I found that there are a lot of men that can't. Right. They can give it, but they can't take it. Right. So, um, I, I think you just have to show them I am on your, I am on your level too. Definitely. Okay. And, and that stuff's not going to bother me. It doesn't offend me. And, and then they're just like, eh, she's one of the guys. She's one of the guys. Exactly. So there's a couple of things we want to wrap, wrap up here. And one of the things I wanted to ask you about, well, we've, so we met in 92 and we've been off and on partners for different investigations since then. But one of the things that Harry gets in trouble for is his mouth and his sarcasm and or, as we said, not being part of the family. And again, I wanted my listeners to understand how difficult was it to be my partner in, when it came to my mouth getting us in trouble? Oh, <laughs> well, at least getting me in trouble. God. Yeah, it was painful. Well, yeah. And one thing you'll learn that being a partner, especially like a permanent partner of somebody, you're going to pay for their shit. Too. <laughs> okay. So, you know, if Phil gets blackballed, I get blackballed just by guilt by association. Right. So, yeah, there were times um, when, you know, we got kind of a shitty detail because they didn't like Phil. And because I was Phil, Phil's plus one, I got right. the shitty detail with him. Right. Um, but then and then you always people were always like, oh, well, if it's a male and female partner, you know that, you know, they're having an affair. right? Oh, gosh. How many times we get that? Yeah. Any, yeah. any male partner I've had, I presumably have had an affair with them. Right. Um, and God forbid. Yeah. Which. Which once again goes back to the thing about your spouses, because, mm-hmm. you know, luckily both of our spouses knew that that was just, you know, typical departmental gossip BS. Right. Um, which I think, if anything, 
your wife was the most understanding because my husband tend to take it as a joke. Right. Um, even when I got pregnant. Right, right, right. Um, you know, he liked to tell the joke to everybody that, um, and I don't know if your listeners know that you're African-American. Probably, but okay. okay. So I'm not my, hi- my, hide it. My, yeah. my, my ex-husband used to say, um, yeah, when that kid comes out, if the hair's nappy, I ain't the pappy. Right. <laughs> and of course, he decides to say this in front of Phil's wife at a picnic. Right. Oh, yeah. And, you know, that could have that could have gone the wrong way right. quickly. But my wife took it in stride. But yeah. luckily, yeah, luckily she was just like, oh, my God, whatever. Right. But um, but yeah, I mean, and there are people who would seriously say for the longest time, yeah, you know, we know something's been going on between them. Right. They just couldn't understand. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like somehow a male and female can't be partners. Well, you know, one of the things before I forget is how many times did we go in a situation and people look at us and they because they, people size you up quickly. And they think that I'm the hard guy and you're the soft guy and come to find out really quickly. And we played off of that, too. We played all we, we played that a lot, too. Yeah, because you're definitely physically more intimidating. Right. I mean, somebody's going to look at you and be like, OK, this is the badass. Right. And this is the sweet little good cop. With yes. Him. Yes. And um, looks can be deceiving. Definitely deceiving. Yeah. Because um, you were the badass. I may have a sweet, innocent face, but yeah, I'm def- <laughs> I definitely have. Yeah, I'm definitely the more sarcastic, impatient, um, rough. Yeah, yeah, no nonsense. Kind yeah, of person. I mean, I, I, how many times our, our sources would come to us? Well, at least come to me like, okay, because they would ask me questions. You know, afterwards, after we debriefed them, they would say, "Is Jackie happy?" <laughs> Do you think Jackie was okay with that? Especially like if you believe the rumor or something. They, I, I specifically remember like three of them were definitely always worried about you being upset with them opposed to me. I'm like, hey, what about me? And they're like, ah, fuck you. What about Jackie? So, well, Jackie, I want to wrap this up. Thank you so, so much. This won't be the last time you're on my podcast because this is the first book. And as things go on with Harry, that definitely that you can help expound on i'm going to be coming to you more often but i really appreciate this i think my listeners would definitely love it so thank you very much my pleasure all right well that's it well everyone that's a wrap wow how time does fly oh my goodness you know we launched this thing in november of 2018 and to me it just went by so fast so I want to give a, a bunch of thank yous and shout outs to a couple of people and if I fit, get someone please 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 don't don't kill me but first I want to give a shout out and thank you to my wife for being patient with me uh, since I retired I kind of dove into this whole podcasting thing and she was extremely understanding when it came to the investment of time and effort. And I also want to thank my daughter. Wow, you know, my daughter is an influencer to me and she encouraged me to start this podcast. And as you, as I told you before, it's so out of my comfort zone, but hey, I'm retired. I want to try something new. And also I want to give a great shout out to, a big shout out to my brother. You know, he started and he will, as he said, be a guest from time to time, but those first couple episodes, as you can tell, we were raw, and but you got a sense of who we were who, and, and who I am. 
So again, thanks, Alan. And just give a shout out to uh, or a big thank you for my last guest, Jackie. You know, I think that was very intriguing. And she said, like, you know, I told her and she said she will be a, a future guest. And I've lined up a couple of other guests of, of interest in the law enforcement world. So and lastly, but of course not least, is you guys, uh, your patience. I'm ever evolving and I'm trying to make this podcast more in- interesting and intriguing. So thanks a lot for your patience with me as I develop this thing and keep the feedback coming. Um, I'm trying to ever evolve and just like I told you when I first my commitment to you is I will not stay stale and stagnant I will always try to get better and your feedback and your points of views help me so keep them coming I'm not afraid of them either way so again to everyone thank you so 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 much and if I forgot somebody again I apologize it's just so many people have been so positive and so supportive in this podcast so uh, that's enough as my as, as, you know I digress as my brother said I, I digress I got, uh, bring it back bring it back so so next up is uh, the Black Ice and I have a couple of guests lined up um, as the Black Ice because I think you know just me speaking to the mic I, I like doing it but also there's so many points of views out there when it comes to law enforcement and my world it is a lot of a lot of this point of view is tied to Harry Bosch. And again, it's not just me. As you heard, there are people in law enforcement reasonably like Harry Bosch. And again, why I'm doing this podcast, because they actually like the way Michael Conley writes about the the um, the world of law enforcement. So, again, thank you, everybody. Uh, please be patient and keep on hanging in with hanging in there with me because I will get better and i will keep on trying to strive to make this podcast interesting so bye